so grateful to have you here today and thank the Lord he brought you here safely on a kind of a dangerous morning and I trust that the Lord will keep us safe in a in a dangerous time as well I know all of us have loved ones and friends who uh, passed or who are ill uh, and uh, it's a it's a kind of a sober time and uh, we also are grateful for the technology the Lord has given us that many could watch online or could kind of watch again online and this is useful because we are jumping back into a series of messages that we set aside before Christmas and the series is in you remember didn't you in the book of Revelation and I'm sure that you read the seventh chapter of Revelation because you knew we were going there next I mean I'm sure you did that am I right let me give you some suggestions about the book of Revelation you know, you have a book here that is one of the most exciting books of the Bible. It's a book that reveals, that uncovers the apocalypse, the uncovering. And it uncovers something about Jesus, and it uncovers something about the future, and it uncovers what people should do in a time that's really evil. And we live in a time that's really evil. And it shows us, it uncovers what God is doing when it's hard to see sometimes what God is doing. And so this is a useful book for now. I want to suggest three things that will really help you get a lot out of study in the book of Revelation. Three things. One, please review. So here's what I would really suggest. Since we have this modern technology where we have a podcast which records the audio of the messages or a video that records the video every week if you're a little bit like you need to catch up or if you need a reminder go back during the week while you're doing some commuting or while you're doing the dishes or while you're walking the dog and go over that material again you might even listen to other preachers that are preaching on the same topic uh, the same text if you will through the week work on that a little bit that's one thing that'll really help you especially in an area where some of what we talk about could be confusing if you don't really study it carefully some parts of the bible you know the, the lord doesn't yield his treasures to people who are just trifling but some parts of the bible are rich if you take time to try to understand them so i would just suggest that you know on the first pass you know just learn what you can but don't make it one pass go back again so number number one would be uh review the second thing would be read the text please and and this this i can't tell you how important this is if you want my preaching or any preaching to be really interesting here's how you do it read the text if you know if you, you know the text the pastor is going to preach on ahead of time it's a great privilege to know this you can read ahead of time uh, you can you can you can and pepper the text with with your questions so write these questions down as a matter of fact you ever get a journal and you think i got a nice journal but i don't know what to do with it I'm kind of a book and pen kind of a guy and so I have more journals I have more books than I'll ever read more pens than I'll ever use and more journals than I'll ever be able to use so a good use for a journal would be get a journal for for the study of Revelation and then um, whenever you are reading the past it's like so next week Lord willing it's chapter 8 of Revelation so read chapter 8 over and over again this is just take it took about three and a half minutes to read chapter 7 out loud or to listen to chapter 7 out loud on YouTube or, or on a podcast. About three and a half minutes. So it'd be easy to listen. Matter of fact, I have a, a beautiful Bible app called the Dwell Bible app. I recommend that. And last night I was just listening to that over and over again. Lois was working in the, in the next room. And after about a half an hour of listening to the same text over and over again, she piped up from the next room and says, well, we're going to remember this, aren't we? And I, I hope so. That's the whole idea. And that is listen or read the passage. And then when a question comes up, write it down. If you read chapter 7, one of the things that you should have written down is who are the 144,000, right? Who are they? If you ask that question, you put that in your journal, then Sunday when you show up for church, one of the things you're going to be saying is, is the guy going to answer the question? Is he going to answer the question? And, and is he going to give reasons for his answer? And that's going to make the preaching interesting. I, I can't emphasize this enough. And the third thing, so first thing, review. Watch the messages again or listen to the messages again or listen to other messages on the same text. Second thing, read ahead and write down your questions. Read ahead, write down your questions. Third thing is get with somebody else and talk about it. 
Now, you can do this formally or informally, but you ought to have somebody that you talk about the Bible. You can talk to your mate, hopefully that, that you talk about the message. You talk about the text of Scripture, and you ask questions, and, and you kind of have a conversation about that. Hey, isn't it true? A lot of what we talk about isn't really a very big deal. Pastor across town, I used to work under his uh, direction, Pastor Anthony. Um, I would come in, and I would be talking about a football game. And Pastor Anthony, would, his, he would get this blank stare because he's one of those guys that didn't really care about football. And I would realize, okay, he doesn't care. And i said, say, I'm sorry, you don't really care about football, do you? And you know what he said to me? I always remember this. He goes, Ken, 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 there will always be another big game. There will always, and you know, I, it's true, it's true. I, I, I'm going to care about football, but there will always be another big game. But nothing is as big as what God's doing in the world. And so get with other people and, and talk about that. I want to I be that guy. I don't want to be that pastor, that irritating pastor. But if you can memorize the statistics of your bowling scores, if you can recount the exact details of how you killed that innocent deer, right? If you know all about that person that you admire, you can study the Bible, God's Word, and you can learn the Bible, God's Word, and it matters. Man, Revelation matters. This stuff is happening. This stuff is going to happen. This is life and death stuff. This matters. So there's that. Now, the passage we're talking about today is Revelation 7. It's between 6 and 8. In Revelation 6, you have the beginning. In, in, in Revelation 6 through 19, you have a description of what is sometimes called in the Bible the tribulation. Sometimes it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, or part of it is. Sometimes it's called the uh, the, there is given other words like in Luke 24, Jesus at one time called it uh, the church age, the time of the Gentiles. And then a time after that, a time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel had a 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel talked about this tribulation period in Daniel chapter 9. 2 Thessalonians talks about this period of time. So all throughout the Bible, Jesus in one of his discourses, the Olivet Discord, discourse spoke about this time. So this period of time, this seven-year uh, period of time that's described in the Bible is described in chapters 6 through 19. And one of the ways that you can understand what's going to happen here is during this time, God says in the future, God's judgments are going to pour out on the earth. And they're given in series of seven, three series of seven judgments. And they begin here with these seals as this scroll is unsealed Things happen on the earth. The scroll is unsealed in heaven and unrolled in heaven, and things happen on the earth, and the things that happen on the earth are judgments. And then there are trumpet judgments. When the last seal is broken, there are trumpet judgments. And when the last trumpet is sound, there are bowl judgments. And so the, the material in 6 through 19 that describe the tribulation are described in a series of judgments in three series of seven different judgments. And if I lost you on that, it, it, it'll become familiar with you as we go over it because this won't be the last time that we talk about it. What we're saying is that in Revelation in chapter 6, it contains six of the uh, description of six of the seven seals, and, and they're not good. It comes to the end and asks a question, who can stand in the face of God on pouring his judgment on the earth when this is going to happen? And, and maybe I should stop, and maybe that's going to stumble you a little bit. And you're saying, wait a minute, I thought God was nice. I thought he was loving. I thought he was merciful. I thought he was gracious. I will say he certainly is, and he's also just, and he's righteous. And you have a human longing for justice, don't you? You have a human longing for, that's one of the great human longings that we have. It's not right that a person, an innocent person should be killed. It's not right that an innocent child should be hurt. There should be, this should be made right. And God is perfectly just, and he has promised to make things right. And he'll do his, he'll, his justice is now being poured, in this text, is describing a time in the future when the justice of God is being poured out on the earth. And yet, it's a measured justice. And it says, in, in this question, the rhetorical question, that that's the end of chapter 6 is, who can stand 
in the face of God's judgment. And really, so then the seventh seal isn't given until chapter 8. You have the first six of the seven seals in chapter 6, and it ends with the question, who can stand? And then you have this parenthesis. And this, if you recall, as we studied through the book of Revelation, one of the things that we said is always ask yourself, where am I now? Or what's the camera angle? Remember that heaven cam, earth cam? In other words, sometimes the camera is trained on earth. And when the camera or the description or the narrative is describing what's happening on earth, then it's chaos and it's betrayal and it's demonic and it's bad and it's bloodshed. And then when the camera angle is in heaven, it's, it's, the camera is trained on the throne of God, the control center of the universe. And everything there is different at the very same time when there's chaos on earth there is order, and there is peace, and there is beauty, and there is worship in heaven. Are you catching on here? And this happens again in chapter 6, about the time we can't stand reading it anymore. It's like, wait a minute, let's pause, and then the camera angle is going to shift, and there are two groups of people that are introduced to us in chapter 7, and it answers the question, who can stand? There are going to be two groups of people who are able to stand before the throne of God. And these two groups of people are described to us in Revelation 7. And then in Revelation 8, the pause, you know, we hit the pause button again, or it unpauses the video, if you will, and it moves to the seventh seal, which contains the trumpet judgments. It's the seventh seal opens and seven trumpet judgments within that, if you will. And so there are two visions that are given in Revelation 7, and you see there's a literary, literary tag, and after this, and, and after this, verse 1 says, and after this, it's like, okay, this is another vision. And then in verse 9, again, John writes, and after this, behold, I looked, and there was a great multitude which no man could number. So it's it, just to give you a little bit of a hooks to hang your thoughts on, the first chunk of this is chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and it's a description of a group of 144,000 that are sealed by God. More explanation later on that. And the second group is a different group. This first group is on earth. Guess where the second group is? This is a common literary feature of Revelation. Now this second group is where? You guessed right. It's in heaven. And so the different groups. And in chapter 7 and verses 9 through 17, you have an amazing description of, of the second group, this great multitude which no man can number. So right now, you should be getting excited about what's going to happen next, which is I'm going to stop talking about the Bible and actually read it. This, is, this should be your favorite part of the whole sermon right now. So let's take God's precious word in our hands and let's read together. Read with me as I read along silently as I read to you from Revelation uh, chapter 7. And verse 17 of chapter 6 is the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? And after this, chapter 7 verse 1, and after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. That's the end of the first chunk. Now there's another vision he describes in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, 
a great, uh, whenever you read behold in the Bible, you shouldn't do it like I just did. Because behold is like, oh, that's the idea, right? So after this, I looked and oh, oh, a great multitude, which no man can number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. How many attributes of God were listed right there? Can you guess? Smart rats will answer seven. Seven. If, you, if in doubt, in Revelation, say seven, and you will often be right. It's so many sevens, and it beautifully describes the perfection of God. It's seven of his beautiful attributes. Now, the, this great multitude, which no man can number, is saying, deliverance came from our God. It belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And the angel's like, amen, blessing and glory and honor, praise, thanksgiving and power be unto God and might. This is quite a scene. How would you like to see a movie of this? It would be powerful. It would be faith building, wouldn't it, if you could see that. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, You tell me, <laughs> right? Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore, they are before the throne of God, or implied, they are standing before the throne. It specifically says they're standing in verse 11. All the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and so forth. And now these are around the throne standing. Who are those who will stand? The 144,000 sealed will stand, and the great multitude of martyrs that come out of the tribulation will stand before the throne of God, will stand before will endure, will, will survive the wrath of God. More on that later. Back to the reading. Therefore, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. Serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You may not completely understand that, but you should get it. But you should get it, and that will help you get it. So, so again, chapter 6 ends with a question after the six of the seven seals are unfolded and judgments pouring out on the earth. And chapter 7 answers the questions before moving to the seventh seal in chapter 8. Get it? Chapter 7 is a parenthesis or a sidebar between the sixth and the seventh seal. The sixth seal opens in chapter 6, and the seventh seal opens in chapter 8, if you're tracking with that. It answers the question posed at the end of chapter 6, who is able to stand? And this matters a lot. It's like, let me put it in terms that might help you right now. You ever look around and think, my goodness, we live in an evil age. So many people don't love God. And sometimes I even find my own heart wanting to stray from God. What should I do? What hope is there? What, what if I can't be faithful to God throughout my life? What if I stumble? What if I fail? What if I am not faithful to God? This should be an encouragement to you. God is able to make you stand. God is able to make you stand. God, by the seal of his Holy Spirit, is able to make you stand. Some of you might say, what if I have to suffer? God is able to reward you after he gives you your life back, after you have suffered unto death. But if he doesn't want anybody to kill you, they can't touch you until he's done, until you're done doing what he assigned you to do. This is kind of what the text is going to say. So there are two groups that survive who stand. The 144,000 Jews here 
who are on earth in verses 1 through 8, and their converts, I believe, who are in heaven. And we'll, we'll go into detail on that. Just a little aside for those of you who are interested in this, if you could write really fast, or all these notes are online. Every detail of this is online at uh, BethelJackson.org under the sermon. You can see it online afterward. Um, but you'll notice there are three sidebars that, sh- that keep showing the place of the faithfulness of God in the tribulation. It's like when I can't take any more, we get a little vision of heaven. And this happens in chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, the, t- the chapter here. It happens again in chapter 10, verses 1 through 11 and 14, and chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. About when it's too heavy to take, we stop and we look at what's happening around the throne of God in heaven. And so, think about this just for a minute. How would having this vision have affected John? Where was he? On the Isle of Patmos in prison, right? He was, in, and he was separated from his loved ones, separated from his churches that he loved, that he wrote to. Did it look good or bad? It looked bad. Separated, couldn't go to worship, couldn't gather with the churches, would have, would have remembered being with Jesus. But so here he is. How would this vision have affected him to see that there are 144,000 Jewish people who are faithful, who's sealed by God? And there's a great multitude which no man can number out of every tribe and tongue and nation standing before the throne of God in heaven. How would that have affected him? It would have encouraged him. How would it have affected the, the, the churches that read this? The original, this is one of the things you always want to do with the Bible, right? Who was the original author? And what was the original setting? And how would the original hearers or readers have felt when they read this? You always, if you answer those questions, you often find the scriptures come alive for you too, which really kind of leads us to the third question. And that is like, why would God want Bethel Church to study this? Why would pastor be taking us through the great tribulation for 14 weeks? Well, because it's God's word. That's why he wants to dwell with us. He wants to shelter us. He wants to make everything that's wrong, right. He's able to seal those he's going to use. He's able to deliver those who suffer. So let's look at these two people, two groups, 144,000 sealed, verses 1 through 8, and they're on earth. It says, after these things, this literary flagging of the beginning of a new vision, he says it in verse 8, 1 in verse 9, the wind of God's judgment, the wind here in the passage is obviously, when you continue reading, that wind is a symbol that's decoded immediately in, in, the, in the next few verses. It's obviously a, a symbol of God's judgment. It's bringing harm, right? And he, they're saying, wait, the, the angel that comes from where the sun comes from, from where God comes from, says, don't harm anything yet until these 144,000, 12 from... 12,000 from each of these tribes are sealed or protected. They're they're protected from the judgments of God while they're doing their serving God, probably their their missionary work. How do we know? Because the great multitude in verses 9 and following are probably the result of their faithfulness and their missionary efforts and God bringing large group of believers to himself. So the wind of God's judgment is withheld until the angel that God has sent to seal a special group with the name of God on their foreheads. Everybody talks about the mark of the beast or the mark of Satan on people, but everything that Satan does is a counterfeit for the good, right thing that God does. And God puts his name, God puts his name on believers. God puts his name on you. God's name on you. Mine. This one is mine. It's kind of neat, isn't it? Sealed. And this, in this particular case, that seal is not a general seal for all believers. It was a specifically protecting these 144,000 through this time of tribulation. And their, uh, their, their verses 5 through 8 is a listing of the tribes. There's 
number of different places in the Bible where the tribes are listed. And there are some minor variations. Students of the Bible that want to go deeper for extra credit could study why are certain tribes listed and certain tribes not listed, and why is one name set aside and another name put there. We could talk for a long time about that, but I would burn the roast, which I don't intend to do. Who are the 144,000? Well, their key text here in chapter 7, they're reintroduced in chapter 14. So if you want to read ahead, you can see more about them. Who are they? Well, it's not, the, the, some have said, well, it's the church, but it's not the church because it says it's Israel. The church is never called Israel in the New Testament. And then the, and these are four reasons why I don't believe it's the church, though some believe it is, because the church is never called Israel in the New Testament is one reason because the 144,000 were never identified by students of the Bible before AD 160. So in the, in, the, in the early years of the church, in the early centuries of the church, no one suggested that the 144,000 were the church. They always assumed they were identified with Israel. The, chap, the church, I believe, is absent in chapters 6 through 19. And this is a loud argument from silence. In other words, in you read chapters 6 through 19, and nothing is obviously and clearly identifying the church. Some believe, and I do, the church is actually absent from the earth that's been raptured there in heaven. Others who love the Lord, have a high view of the Bible, think the church goes through the tribulation, but the emphasis is on Israel in the tribulation. And this is in our church, we've agreed not to go to daggers about that, but to, but to allow some gentleman and lady conversation about that. I just think it's fair for you to know I would lean toward the, the church isn't here group, even though I would have a lot of respect for people who say, no, the church is here, but the emphasis is on Israel. The key thing is, it's obviously to me, it's Israel. The vision names specific tribes, and it specifically says, if you read it, it says in verse 4, I heard the number sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So I think it's Israel. So you have, you think, well, why is this important? It's going to be important because God always intended for his people Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. And they haven't really been in, altogether as they should be. And in this time of tribulation, you have these 144,000 that are raised up, and there are other characteristics of them that are fascinating that you can study when we get further into the book. And as soon as they do what they do in faithfulness to God, there's suddenly there's a great number of believers from, uh, that are Gentiles and Jews alike, and nobody can number them. And so most students of the Bible believe there's a, there's a corollary, there's a cause and effect between verse 8 and verse 9. And that is, because the 144,000 served the Lord faithfully and they were true to his testimony, as it says in chapter 14, then there was a great harvest of souls of people coming to, to know the Lord during the time of the tribulation. And it is obviously is the case because that next group is a great multitude that no one can number that are coming out of the tribulation. And so that list, we may not entirely, we haven't addressed it right now about why the list includes some and doesn't include others, but in general, most Bible scholars suggest that the list is representative of those who are faithful uh, to God. And, and, and he has put his seal or protected them through this time of tribulation. One thing that the list does tell us clearly is it indicates that it's a literal time and space group of people, as genealogies do. And they're beginning, they're the beginning, or these 144,000, according to chapter 14, are the beginning, or they're the first fruits of, of those who become a great harvest of souls during the tribulation. And um, when I was in uh, Indiana once on a missions trip, uh, we were at the dunes, and uh, buses began to arrive from Chicago. A whole bunch of buses from what appeared to be a school arrived uh, there at the dunes, and the doors opened up, and we realized it was a school of Orthodox Jews, and out of the buses poured dozens and dozens of little, little boys with, uh, with uh, Orthodox Jewish clothing on and little curls uh, beside their head, and they rushed out like any little boys would do and began to play on the beach and look around. And I watched those 
dozens of little Jewish boys. And my imagination took over, and I thought, who knows when Jesus is going to return or when the rapture of the church is going to take place. And God's going to begin to call to himself young Jewish boys. The Bible says they will be Jewish males, and they will be virgins, and they will be pure, and they will be faithful. And it's implied that they will serve, it says they will serve the Lord and be faithful to the testimony. And it's implied they will be a, a band of 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And as I looked at those little boys, I thought, Jesus comes back soon. Some of those boys could be among them. How interesting would that be? Can you imagine 144,000 men like Billy Graham all over the earth during a time when people are looking for questions, to have their questions answered? And this is what is described here. So God will pour out his wrath, but he will protect his people until they finish the job he's given them to do. And the first group doesn't die. They're not harmed by God's wrath. They're not harmed by people. They survive the tribulation. They'll be protected. They'll survive. Now, the second group in verses 9 through 17 are the great multitude no one can number. And they're standing, which is significant. They're standing before the throne. Who will stand? Verse, the last verse of verse chapter 6 says, these are standing before the throne. And they're a completed number. If you look in chapter 6 and verse 11, there was the reference to the souls that were suffering. They were given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until their number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete. It's like God, these are martyrs of the tribulation, people that were faithful in the tribulation and died and then went to heaven. And God is saying in chapter 6, verse 11, be, be patient until the number is complete. There's a fixed number of those who are going to suffer in this way. And, and this is an encouragement, right? If you are going through difficulty, God knows how long that difficulty is. Can I say it this way? God knows if you're going to die and he can sustain you in your death. God knows if you're going to suffer and he can strengthen you to suffer. Often I hear Christians say, I just can't. I just can't. And then the next thing is something that God has told them to do. I just can't fill in the blank. I just can't stay with this man. I just can't put up with this woman. I just can't do that under these circumstances. Wait. If God says you can, he will strengthen you to do. He knows how long your difficulty is going to last. And he can sustain you. This is what the text is saying here. And so these are, they, these are people that have white robes washed in the blood in the righteousness of Christ. And palm branches, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would use palm branches as a sign of joy and a victory. And throughout the, the Jewish nation, this is what they, they would do they would wave palm branches in victory. So here you have a group from every, it's a, it's a multitude, no one can number, I'm in verse 9. They're from every nation, this means mean Gentiles, and tribe, and Jews, peoples, and Jews and Gentiles, peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, they're believers, they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and they have palm branches in their hands, they're, they're celebrating a victory. They're doing the Super Bowl dance. They're doing the national championship dance thing. They're, they're expressing their joy. Who are these people? They're people who died after suffering in the tribulation. And now they're in heaven at the throne of God standing and celebrating a great victory. And they're righteous before God. God is able to make you stand God is able to sustain you and keep people from hurting you. Or if he lets people hurt you, he's able to take you into his presence where you will now be living in eternal victory and eternal joy before God. But if you reject Christ in this age, will you be able to receive Christ in the tribulation? There's some conversation about that. I, I would be very careful about that. Can people who have heard the gospel in the church age be saved in the tribulation if they've rejected the gospel. And I think they can, but I would not gamble with that. And here's why. If we were to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, one of the things that you see described there is the same period of time. And one of the things it says is that there will be a great deception that sweeps over the earth during this time. So not everybody will be enlightened, like Logan said. And Logan, when you said that, you, you said something very scriptural, like the, you said the, like the lights went on. That's what the Bible says. Like, that's enlightenment. 
You, you told me before, Logan, you said, I, I was an atheist, and then the lights went on, and I believed the things that I was told about God. And this is the way it works. God turns the lights on. We don't even have to have all of our, Logan, that's so wonderful, by the way, my friend. That's so wonderful. That God saved you and brought you to himself and turned the lights on for you. And this is what will happen. God, the Holy Spirit, has to turn the lights on in a miraculous way. And the things that you doubted before, some people who think they're saved are not saved. And the lights are not on. And they don't love the things of God. And they don't hate the things they ought to hate. But they're churchy. And they've been around church. And they've been around Bible. And they know enough things to say that just they're almost like it's like an inoculation that keeps them from having the real thing. And they need the lights that you should ask God. God, turn the lights on and lighten me. Give me a hunger for your word. Give me a love for your church. Give me a desire to serve you. Help me to love what I ought to love. Let the lights go on. In, in the tribulation, the lights may not go on for many. And that's the thing that's implied in 2 Thessalonians. But for a great multitude, which no man can number, the lights will go on. In chapter uh, 7 there, verses 9 and 10, in chapter 6, this group of martyrs is crying out for deliverance. God, when are you going to make this right? When are you? And now their cry is different, isn't it? What's their cry in heaven? It's the cry. Listen, listen to it. It's, it's kind of sweet. And then the ones that, the, the, the martyrs crying out for deliverance, crying out for justice, how long, you know, they're crying now in heaven and they're saying, deliverance belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God. My hero is Jesus. He's the one that delivered me. He's the one that delivered me from my sin. He's the one that delivered me from my enemies. Salvation belongs to our God. You know, the one who sits on the throne. And you know, the lamb. That's what they're saying. Salvation belongs to our God and to the lamb. That's what they're saying. Their, their song changes. So John, imagine John, how encouraged John would be in seeing this great multitude. And imagine how wonderful it would be to change their song from God. When are you going to, when are you going to, when are you going to, like we often say to God, God, when are you going to make things wrong, right, to salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. I've been standing by the throne. Then what happens after they sing this song? After they say, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. What happens? It's kind of what happens all the time in heaven when the saints start to sing, the angels want to get in on it. And the, and the cherubim, which are the, 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 around the throne there, you have a description there. The, um, the, all the angels standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, which are probably a, a rank of angels, cherubim, that are f- frequently listed with the elders around the throne, with the angels around the throne. This is the one on the throne and the lamb and the angels and the, and the, and the boss angels and the great angels and the elders. And what are they doing? And look what it says. They, they, they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. Muslim boy came to our church for a few weeks once. A young man that we met at the gas station, he came to our church for a few weeks I kind of thought he was trying to meet a girl myself, but he might have been trying to meet God. He texted me one time. His name was Muhammad. And he said, I've been to your church for three weeks. When do your people worship? I said, what do you mean? He says, nobody ever gets down on their face. It wasn't a bad question. The only legitimate answer to that question, coming from a man who has a lot of trouble physically getting down on his face, is sometimes I do that when nobody's looking. When was the last time you just got down on your face and said, God, God, you are God. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. God on the throne and to the Lamb, you are God. I love you. I'm yours. Make me faithful. Seal me. Protect me. Help me. I need you, God. There's no excuse. The people who meet God, what do they always do? Bang, down on their face. Down on their face before God. And so it it is with these angels and with these living creatures and with these elders. And then they said, they're praising 
God saying amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, honor, and power, and might be to our God forever. Amen. This is what's happening. And they worship God, and they praise Him for these seven attributes. And then, then the elder wants to do a teaching with John just to make sure, like a really good teacher, ask questions that she always knows the answer to. But they want to see if you can give the answer if a, if a person doesn't ever do that, they're probably not a good teacher because a good teacher doesn't just belch out information. A good teacher, right? A people, people that are oriented toward teaching that are really good, the ones I've known, are always going, my grandpa was this way, why did I turn it to the left and not to the right? Why? Why do you think I did that? And, you, and, you was like, and he would want you to say, I, I don't know. And then they would ask again. And so this is what's happening here, right? So you have this, then one of the elders, so it must be important because this elder's going, don't don't miss this right here. Get this in your book. Write this one down. Who are these people that are clothed in white robes? Where did they come from? And I said, you tell me, right? Sir, you know. He said, these are the ones coming out of great tribulation. I know you are not in the great tribulation right now. So if what you're going through is something less than the great tribulation, and God can deliver people out of the great tribulation, he can deliver you out of whatever it is you're going through right now. This is what he wants you to know. You may suffer, but he will deliver you through the suffering. Or he may not suffer, he may protect you from it. He can do whatever he wants. He may sometimes allow you to suffer. He may sometimes not allow you to suffer. But he is able to make you stand. And this is what this this text is all about. They've washed their robes. They've made them white. Now we have it real clearly. How did they make their robes white? How was it that they were right with God? What was it that washed their robes white? The blood of the Lamb, which is an unvarnished reference. If you know the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament, to God giving us his righteousness through the slain lamb, the son, Jesus. They got saved. So they were clean and they were pure. Sorry, Logan, you get to be like the, um, the illustration today. But you stood before us and humbly confessed your sin. That's the man you used to be, but not the man that you are today. Because you, when God looks at you, Logan, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That doesn't even make sense, does it? But it's what God said is true. And so, that you're, so when you pass from death into life, when the lights went on, then you were clothed in that, those white robes of the righteousness of Christ through the blood of the Lamb. And that's the way it is for any of us. Who, can anybody say praise be unto God right now? When I came to this church, I remember hearing Neil, you remember preaching, Neil, about Mr. Vite, about... Uh, want the church to reach people who don't know the Lord. And I was listening to that, walking around the pond, and I thought, well, now, God, if you let me go to that church, I'm going to help that man so that we can pray for people. And God will send us people who need him. And he is doing that. And there's nothing, that's the big game right there. That's the big game. That's the big game. That's the thing that's going to matter. That's the thing they're going to be singing about in heaven. That's what gets the angels excited. Amen? That's what gets the demons mad. That's what gets the angels excited when, when the lights go on for people like Logan. That's when, when a little child says, I'm going to be faithful to God, God helping me all throughout my life. I'm going to live faithful. I'm going to die faithful. If it kills me, I'm going to follow him. That's what gets the angels excited around the throne. And, the, and this is what it said. Did you get that? Yes, before the throne of God, serve him day and night. And then it says in verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. God's promise, his presence, his presence as a protection for them. And they won't hunger anymore, and they won't thirst anymore, and the sun won't strike them with a scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear <laughs> from their eyes. <laughs> Amen. 
So they serve him day and night. They dwell, he dwells among them, cast a tent over them. They don't hunger. They don't thirst. They don't have unrequited desires and needs. The lamb is their shepherd, takes them where they need to go, feeds them with what they need to have. He leads them to fountains of living water for flourishing. He wipes away all their tears. He takes away all their sorrows. Trust him. Faithful, be faithful. He can make you faithful. He's faithful. Four things before we quit. Four things. God, you're not in a hurry. It's dangerous to drive out there. Let's just relax. Four things. God's not eager to judge you. He's eager to bring justice to the earth, and he wants to extend his mercy to you. In wrath, he always remembers his mercy. That's number one. God is not eager to judge you. God isn't eager to judge. He has a redemptive plan so that people can be under the mercy of God. Two, you can live a consecrated life even in a really hard time. These people were faithful in the great tribulation. You can be faithful. Patricia Engler, young woman, went out to, she was uh, taught by her parents, and she went out to college, and she thought, she discovered that college was a really difficult place there. It was really hostile to her faith. So she decided that she's going to do something interesting. You can read this, young people. You should look her up, Patricia Engler. Google that, look her up. She decided she'd backpack around the world and she would visit Christians that were in hostile environments to see how they could faithfully follow the Lord even when they were in a hostile environment. And all around the world, she found stories of people who were in the worst, most hostile environments that were hostile against their faith. And they were faithful. I met a girl at camp, and I said to her, I said, where do you go to school? She told me, Grand Valley, it's a secular university, right? I said, oh, man, it's going to be hard leaving camp and going to a secular university, you know, where, where they're hostile. More often, there are people who are hostile against faith. She says, not really. I'm looking forward to it. And I said, why? It surprised me. She said, we have such a strong Christian group on campus. It's like we're having a revival right now, and I can't wait to get back to it. God can make you faithful in the darkest place. God can make you faithful in living among evil. If you can be faithful, if God can seal to himself people in the great tribulation. I I kind of made my point. Third thing. So God's not eager to judge you, but he's eager to show you his mercy. Second, you can live a consecrated life. These are lessons we learn from this. Two more. God will seal. He'll protect. He'll preserve. He will use. He'll reward you. He can do that in the darkest place. This is what he did there. John Piper, pastor that I admire a lot, read his things, it's helpful to me, took a church in downtown Minneapolis and bought a house in downtown Minneapolis in 1980. And remember the the George Floyd incident and then all the terrible things that happened after he was killed? He lives right there. He lives within blocks of that. He's seen people shot in the front yard. He he lives there in a modest uh, home recently hired some boys to mow mow his lawn, and then he was sitting in his room, and those boys came back and tried to force their way into the house. He said, hey, if you can come here and mow my lawn, I'll give you money, but you can't break in and take things. Go away. And he said, they went away. He's he's, uh, invited people in his church to buy homes in the neighborhood. He's been there since 1980. Over 400 people, did you know this? Over 400 people have bought homes in that neighborhood. So evil isn't the only thing going on in that neighborhood. God is there too. God is wherever you are, and he can make you faithful even in a difficult place. And fourth, you're created to praise him. Think about heaven, and and what they do ultimately is what we're ultimately made to do. You're created to praise him. You're created to enjoy him. You're created to worship him. You're created to serve him. You're created to influence other people to do the same, to pray for people like like Logan and Victoria and others, and, to sh- and, and, and not to be discouraged. God is faithful, and God can make you faithful. The campers at Camp Barakel one year sang a song. I think it's an old song that Petra did, and others have done it. And it's so beautiful. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And, and that year, you know, when you hear campers 
when you speak to them all week, and then at the end of the week when they're all gathered together, hundreds of them in one chapel, and they're singing, there's kind of like nothing on earth quite like that. And one night I had to drive away to come home, and I had been there all week listening to the kids, uh, preaching to the kids and listening to them sing. And I remember driving away listening to them sing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And I thought, can you imagine a multitude that no man can number and angels and elders and living creatures before the throne of God singing salvation? We're here because God, God was faithful. And he, he made us, he helped us to be faithful. Because God is faithful, you can be faithful. May God help us to be among the faithful whose happy hearts burst with praise for all eternity. And we sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. We're about to go home, finally. Are you going to be faithful to God in your life? Are you going to be faithful to God? When you go back to school, are you going to be faithful to God? Are you going to be faithful to God when hardship, temptation, cancer, illness, depression, sadness come? God can make you faithful. He can seal you. He can protect you. He can strengthen you. He can help you. I wonder if a great way to start the year would be, even if you're just like a little person, a young person, is to go home and to say to God, get down, you know, on your knees by your bed and say, God, I love you. I want to be faithful to you. Help me be faithful to you. And then when you're old like me, and you think, well, I can't move as fast as I used to, but I'm still moving. And I'm not going to finish first. But I'm going to finish. And I'm going to finish faithful. Because you're faithful. And you can make me faithful. And somebody will say, he was good to his kids. He loved his wife. He plowed the snow. He wired the cross. She ran a ladies group. She brought punch. <laughs> God make us faithful. Can I pray that God will help you to be faithful. Stand and I'll pray a blessing on you today. And do be careful as you go home and get a chance to tell Logan how happy you are that he's a follower of Jesus now. Jesus, thank you for this encouragement from your word that you are faithful and you will always be faithful. And if you want to deliver us from evil, you can. And if you want to deliver us through evil, you can. And that when we're done with our weeping, and with our hardship, and with our hunger, and with our thirst, and with our injustice, there's going to be an eternity of palm branch waving celebration in heaven around the throne where we will stand because you made us to stand. And I pray, Lord, for Logan, and we thank you for what happened today, that you saved him, drew him to yourself, and that he wanted to be baptized today. Help him, and Victor, help him as they grow in the Lord, and others, Lord, you brought to yourself. And I pray that you'd use us as we follow you and help others to follow you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.